Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. up everybody welcome to another episode of true crime and cocktails we're so glad that you're here as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-host s with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling i'm doing great fantastic how are you doing i'm exhausted of course you know what it is is that i thought mm. i had known what tired is mm. and then the exhaustion fairy well, that that right there is a sign of yeah. my tired level. Uh, said, ah. "Hold my beer." Is the point? I am. Um, mm. I'm. I'm currently in production on season two of Not Dead Yet, uh, which at this point you can stream the first episode of season yeah. two. Beautiful. Um, we're going at a pace that can be best described as uh, built to kill. Yeah, built to kill. So it's mm-hmm. just been a little unrelenting. Um, and I've done this. I was saying this to my to my boyfriend earlier. I was like, you know, I've done this job for a long time. I've been on like an American TV show for basically the yeah. like the past ten years. I've been on one or another, and and uh, this is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And look, it's yeah. not um, it's not a negative. It just is. You know what I mean? It's like it just is. Sure. And so again, we're 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 working against the clock. Um, Obviously, the strikes last year kind of were uh, unfortunate in terms of scheduling. And and so, yeah, we're just in it. We're just in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're doing great. Thanks so much. I have a 3.30 wake up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know what? I'm here. I'm with my best gal. Yes. I'm going to learn about a yes. serial killer I've never heard of before. I mean, I'm too blessed to be stressed is the point. And this is coming out on Galentine's. And that's nice. You know, Isn't it? I think Galentine's, people are throwing it around a little. You know what I mean? It's any day. Oh, and sure. listen, I, by that I'm also, I'm grateful uh, to have that also. But but we have to remember it is a statutory holiday. 
in our universe. Yes. Of course. February 13th, baby. Yes. That's a beautiful thing. Well, I'm here thing. for it. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. To all the gals out there and all their yeah. gal pals, happy Galentine's. Oh, what I wouldn't give uh, if if groups are getting together yeah. for like a, a mimosa, sure. margarita, whether alcohol virgin or not, yep. either way. Mm -hmm. uh, just like getting together for like a brunch. Yep. And then listening to, listening to me talk about a very brutal killer. <laughs> yeah. We hope you're yeah. celebrating Galentine's in the traditional way. Sit around with some gal pals with a non-alcoholic or alcoholic beverage and sit in silence listening to us wax poetic about a killer. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, uh, I can imagine worse days. We do it for fun. And as a job. Well, I, I I was gonna say we come by it honestly, but I'm like, I mean, we were raised by unsolved mysteries. So. Yeah. <laughs> what What else were we gonna do? It does feel in our adult years. It does feel full circle that it came to this eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that there's supposed to be new unsolved mysteries at some point this year, which uh, the last time they announced it. For what, season three? Yeah. I was like, yes, I'm ready. And then I watched them and went, all right. I think what it is, is that first season of the Netflix one mm. was so good. Oh. I mean, it was the first season of our show. It was. On the Unsolved yeah. Mysteries edition. How beautiful. Um, and then the second season, we were still okay with. And then the third season was the one where we were like, what's happening here? There were a couple in there where you were like, this, yep, here we go. Yeah. This is a good one. And then there were some that were like, okay. Yeah. And that's it. And I, I, it's it's tough. I just feel Unsolved Mysteries is such a specific type of show or specific type of case that they're looking for. And I just don't know that they hit it. The third time. What I wonder is, is it the turnaround? Because I don't know how much oh. time they had to get that first season up, but then the first season did so well that then was it like, all right, let's go. The next season, they may have already been kind of working on that. I, I, I'm oh, writing sure. a story right now. But again, maybe season it's two what we do. was like, here's the ones that didn't make season one, but they're already kind of, you know, half on the go. Season sure. three, it could have been like, ooh, we're starting from scratch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It read that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so spicy. Hey, I'm so oh, I, out of I'm it. here for it. It should also be noted, we're in the midst of something yeah. they're calling an atmospheric river in Los Angeles. Have you heard this? What does that even mean? What it means- Just like flooding? Yeah. It means that we're we're basically under under siege. Um, the, the bulk of the city is under flash flood warnings. One of the oh. first listed, my neighborhood, my area. Of, of course. course. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's roads that are out. Even today I was driving to work and I realized I took, I went through the, I can take freeways to get there or I can go through the hills. And I went through the hills and as I was driving, I was like, what am I doing? There's mudslides everywhere. There's there's news teams, news vans set up with a, with a like, I'm Peter Pie in the sky and I'm here on the scene of absolute carnage. Uh, Canadian gals trying to make her way to work. 
risking your life. <laughs> um, they've literally told us, by the way, the mayor has said, don't leave your homes unless absolutely necessary. The governor no. has called a state of emergency. But you know who doesn't stop? Jeez. Television. <laughs> well, no, because when you're stuck at home, you got to have something to watch. Exactly. So television production's still up and running of uh, risking the lives of everyone. I'm kidding. Again, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, you, you guys were considered uh, during the pandemic you had to film. We did. Yeah. We did. Not everybody. <laughs> but your show certainly had to. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? In a sense, uh, that is an honor because why do you become an actor? Why do you why do you do this work? Why do we create entertainment? Well, it is for, for the for the betterment of others and all of the above, and sure. it does feel like, in a sense, that is an essential essential service or whatever you want to call it. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's just it's. Uh, I think it's this. I think I'm just broken. <laughs> <laughs> I just I feel like is it great for you to entertain and what you know bring joy and whatever to other people yeah. yeah but maybe less so when it like affects your safety yeah maybe yeah i think this too is mm. like this is one of those tough ones currently because it's been going on for so many days and mm. i think we keep thinking it's almost over if that makes sense so it's like oh it'll be better by tomorrow and then it's like oh no it's still going like like the rain is not stopped at this point for 72 hours i want to say i see yeah and it's it's again as i've talked about before like people also have to remember like los angeles specifically is not built for it because um, 10 years ago the first year i moved here there was one day of mm. rain out of 365 now, that put the city into a great drought. That's not what I'm saying is ideal either. But we've gone from that to having these week-long stretches of heavy rain. I mean, one area here got 10 inches in like half a day of rain. Oh, God. Yeah. There's some people I know that are basically trapped in their homes. People that live in the hills. They're like, well, I can't get out. The roads are all flooded, so I guess I'm in here for now. Oh, God. That's yeah, wild. I mean... I basically live like I'm trapped in my home. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not. But uh, we're house arrested by yeah. choice. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, do you sometimes consider like committing a light collar crime just so you have an excuse to not leave? Uh, yeah, sometimes. But uh, yeah, it's like you open the door, you shove the children out. And then you get on the couch and then that's just where you stay to work until the kids come home. And I understand if we all had to stay and they would also be home. Right. Which, you know, affects the workday. Because it's constant, like, he needs a snack, he needs this, whatever. And then they want, they suddenly remembered everything they've never told you. And you're just <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then they're like, you know, once in the second grade, and I'm like, yeah, man, let's hear it, because uh, I never want them to think I'm not interested, so I always am like, oh, okay, bud, what's up? And I'll always stop what I'm doing to listen to what they have to say. Uh, and then their videos, their little videos, the little little sounds and the screams that they can handle watching, and they're giggling away, and I'm just like, we're gonna do that here, huh? We have a 
We have a real cozy basement. <laughs> you could just pop down there. Fully finished. Pop down there and hang out. Um, yeah, no, it's a, a, a joy and a treat to have them around. Uh, it's just a lot sometimes when you're- Of uh, course. People are like, you work from home. You don't have to, you know, leave your house to go to work. And it's like, that is great. But also I don't have an official start and stop time of my day. Yeah. My day just kind of continues regardless. It bleeds. Yeah, it does. And and look, because of that, we're here today. How beautiful. Now, I've you've told me before we started, you got some updates for us. I do. Wow. One I learned about a couple of days ago. Uh, one I learned about this afternoon. And then one that it's not so much an update as... Uh, something I feel like I have to mention and I don't want to, and so I'm just gonna and then can't move wait. Ah, <laughs> uh, so first of all, with an update from an episode that we recorded, I do believe. Ah, oh, shit! What season was that? I'm gonna say it was either the first episode of season three or the first episode of season four. I genuinely do not recall which one. Doesn't matter. Yeah. The point is. Within the last few days, I learned about it this afternoon, but that doesn't matter. Uh, it was specifically announced that uh, Yolanda Saldivar was going to be up for parole in May 2025. For those who may not recall who she is, Yolanda fatally shot 90s pop sensation Selena Quintanilla in March 1995. Right. It seems Yolanda was driven to murder... Uh, after Selena discovered Yolanda had been embezzling from Selena's clothing boutiques. Selena was 23 at the time of her death. Uh, Yolanda was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 30 years. So meaning, of course, yes, she will be eligible for parole next year. Yolanda is featured in a new crime doc series that is coming out on Oxygen. Honestly, I have no interest in hearing what that woman has to say. Yeah. There is nothing she could say that would make me go, I get it. Or, okay, sure, she be, she should be out. Um, Yolanda is currently 63 years old. And as far as I'm concerned, prison can keep her. <sighs> because you know who will never get to be 63? Selena. Yeah. And so... Not interested. Uh, but if you're interested in hearing more on Selena's case, or if you just want to hear me awkwardly attempt a lot of Spanish, check out episode 89. And if you'd like to hear me awkwardly attempt a lot of Spanish, <laughs> go over to my TikTok or my Instagram. <laughs> There's a bit of a viral video over there. It's a lot of fun. That was such a beautiful segue I had not anticipated. It, I, I had to run with it. Of course. You lobbed me a softball I, and I just I would have been upset if you hadn't. I had to swing. Um, well, I, well, my question to this, first of all, by the way, is does yeah. Yolanda, did Yolanda hire whatever PR person Gypsy Rose hired? Because Gypsy Rose started doing those, the did that documentary, the new one about her where she speaks. Oh, Whatever sure. it was. It feels like she probably was filming it about a year before she was me meant to get out. Oh, it's, and then it, maybe it's like, look at this, and I feel bad, and look at my life now, and I'm right. ready to move on. And then they see that and go, okay, let her out. That feels like an interesting coincidence, doesn't it? It does. Both women 
I mean, Gypsy Rose obviously didn't physically do the killing herself, but like both women charged with murder, um, doing true crime documentaries that they're speaking in around a year before they're set to get. Now, granted, she may not get out. She may be denied parole, right? Sure. And I'd love that for her. Yeah. Interesting. I just had to point that out. Oh, no, there's something about it, I'm sure. Something feels up to me. Because it's also, you can't tell me that the documentary people, I went there, um, you can't tell me that they didn't purposely plan out the timing. Right. Of like, this will come out like a year before and then like the final thing will be, you know, she's up for parole at this point. And it's like, yeah, great. And see, with Gypsy Rose... I mean, she didn't physically do it, but at the same time, what she went through? Yeah. Versus the person who just stole money from someone who she said was her best friend. Yeah. And then killed her when the friend confronted her about it. Oh, 100%. I'm not comparing their crimes at all. But, But yes, I hear you. It's... Well, I guess the other thing is, like, I now see, and this is how they get you, because I'm like, I'm almost curious to watch it because she's such a villain. Selena was so beloved, obviously, yeah. by fans at the time. But I feel like even to this day, it's like there's such a lore of like, oh, like anytime you hear the name Selena, it's like, oh, God, like she was a child when she was killed, basically, right? And yeah. So again, I'm like, I don't know that anyone like Gypsy Rose obviously is a sympathetic figure, whether wherever you land on it. Right. Like she was a victim of torture her entire life. Uh, This is is interesting. It's like to your point, it's like, well, what is it about this woman's story that's going to potentially try and make us have compassion? Is that what we're to find out? Should we watch? Well, I was just double checking on the title. It is called. Selena and Yolanda, the secrets between them. Oh, no. Oh, this feels... So, yeah, they're they're absolutely trying to reel you in to be like... Because there's going to be something that they're like... I mean, who knows what they'll say. I'm sure it'll be like an, oh, she was treated so poorly by right. her and all of this where it's like, I don't care what this woman says. Yeah. She was a 23-year-old girl. I know. Like, get out of town. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, she's absolutely looking for sympathy, and it'll be like, look at how hard things have been for me since. Look at this. And it's like, mm-hmm. Wowzer. I mean, here's the thing. I'd be a terrible judge or terrible person to put on, like, a jury, which is part of the reason they'd never have me, um, or even, like, a the panel for, like, getting out and an appeal and all of that because I'd just be like, you did what? No. But they're a super good person now. No. No, thanks. Yeah. Like, no. Because also she'd get out and then you can't tell me she's not going to go Gypsy Rose and go do all the interviews and it's like, no. I don't... You can't tell me this woman didn't make money off doing this this document. I think you have to be paid. Maybe not. I think you do. I think there's some rules that you have to be paid, but I could be wrong. I don't know how it mm. works. Like, I don't know how are you allowed to make money when you're in jail? I don't know. I don't know how that works. Oh, sure. 
I mean, it could also be, uh, oh, I wonder if it would be like, we'll give it to somebody else, like a family member or something, and then you get it when you come out, or we'll give you the check when you come out. Who knows? Yeah, does it go into a trust or something? But I absolutely could see her being like, I will do this to get out. Yes. Because the timing is too wild. Yes. Also, it's been uh, it's been 30 years, but we're still pissed. Yeah. So, bye, Yolanda. Bye. Not interested. No. Ah, not interested at all. Ah, so another case that we did more recently uh, than episode 89. It's weird to think of episodes under 100 now. Yeah. Um, Because it took, it seemed like it took forever to get to 100. And since then, they're just flying by. Yeah. I don't even know how that works. So. We did an episode about a serial killer named Herb Baumeister. Oh, right. Uh, I mentioned that in 1996, 10,000 pieces of human remains were discovered at Baumeister's former home, an 18-acre estate called Fox Hollow Farm, located in Westfield, Indiana. One of his victims um, was previously identified through dental records, but the family requested that the investigators do a more thorough test to compare it with DNA because they wanted to be for sure, for sure, that their loved one was in fact a victim. Uh, The DNA results have come back. The remains did in fact belong to 34-year-old Manuel Resendez, who initially disappeared in August 1993. Um, So he was already on the suspected victims list, but now we have for sure we know uh, without a doubt. And if you're interested, that was episode 142, which somehow feels like eight years ago and yesterday. Yeah, I get that. I have nothing else to base that on. I also want you to know I did write down Peter Pie in the sky <laughs> because I liked, I liked that. Thank you. A lot. I liked that a lot. Now, this is not an update because we've never talked about this before. But it involves someone who I have talked about very lovingly on this program. Um, oh, no. I'm just running with calling it a program. It is a program. Um, it is. God damn it. Uh, God. I just want you to know how much I don't want to talk about it, but I also absolutely have to talk about it. So... Mm. Five, this also happened within the last few weeks, but five uh, professional hockey players have been charged with a sexual assault that allegedly occurred in June 2018 following a Hockey Canada banquet in London, Ontario. The players at the time were part of the gold medal winning Canadian team. <sighs> the case was initially closed without charges in 2019. It was reopened three years later. In the past few weeks, there have been so much speculation about this. It was just recently announced that all five players uh, allegedly involved have been charged. The players include Dylan Dubé of the Calgary Flames, Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, Michael McLeod and Cal Foote of the New Jersey Devils, and Alex Fermentin. Uh, He once played for Ottawa, uh, but more recently has been playing professionally in 
Switzerland. Uh, I have said allegedly a lot throughout this case uh, because there has not been an official verdict, and I'm a scared of lawyers. Uh, but let it be known, we believe victims, and we stand with victims on this show. If these players, um, if what they're being accused of is true, I hope that justice is served, regardless as to who they are. Um, if the allegations are true, I am so deeply disappointed and outright devastated to think that someone that I have been such a fan of could be involved in anything like this. Um, I think of my boys um, as my kids. In some respect, half the team I could have birthed age-wise, so I think of them as my kids. And so it's devastating. <laughs> and this news has been really uh, tough, uh, tough to take. Um, but since I have mentioned uh, Carter's name on this show before... I felt I had to mention these allegations because uh, it would have been weird for me not to. Yeah. Um, all five players involved were given indefinite leave by their individual teams. The case will be heard in court in April of this year. Um, and while no one listening to our show has possibly been able to escape hearing me mention my beloved Philadelphia Flyers, who have been my team since June 1997 and will be my team for life. Some may have specifically missed the moment where I mentioned Carter. It was a few episodes ago. I'm not going to go find out which one because it doesn't matter. Uh, but the point is, because over the last few months, I've been ending each episode saying goodnight to a different member of the Flyers roster for the sake of manifesting a Stanley Cup run. It's who I am. I will continue to do it. Um, so it's, yes, I've said his name it was long before any of this came out and before I knew of any, any of it. So, uh, yeah, my point is I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop mentioning the flyers because it has nothing to do with them. And I'm not going to stop, uh, listing off the players because God, I need that Stanley cup run of harder this year than any year prior. But yeah, it would have been weird not to mention it. So now it's mentioned. And there we go. Fantastic. I didn't get into the specifics of it because, my God, what those gentlemen, not gentlemen, are accused of is pretty vile. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope that uh, justice is served. Oh, 100%. Yeah. The fact that this happened in 2018 and they're just getting to it, like, it's a... It's a whole thing about cover-ups and mm -hmm. what Hockey Canada has been doing. And yeah, I'm sure there could be a whole episode about it. But for now. Well, we'll have to see how it all shakes that. out. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting, but it's it's a it's a tough blow. I, yes, it. it's a tough blow. But well, I'm sorry that they let you, know? you down. Uh, he did specifically. Yeah. I don't know the other jokers. Thank you for jokers. <laughs> oh, look, anyone who treats anybody else uh, in a bad way, I feel lets me down personally. Of course. Um, but specifically, someone that I uh, loved and respected. It was really bad. It yeah. Was, especially because I've been saying for the last couple of months, he got sick and injured in like November, late November-ish. And so he missed a chunk of time. 
And when he came back, something just wasn't right. And he was off. And it was like, he just wasn't up to where he was normally. Something was going on. And then if he was on the bench, you could see it in his eyes. Something was off. And I kept saying, something's going on with him mentally. This isn't, this isn't right. I just know. And then they suddenly announce he's taking leave indefinitely. And I was like, see, I told you, I knew it. Something's going on with him mentally. That's been screwing with his game. Something's going on. And then this came out that that's why everyone's taking leave. And I just, uh. I mean, I was right. Yep, you were. Just uh, didn't see that. Didn't see that coming. I expect more from my boys. I expect more from all men. Thank you very much. Thank you for correcting me in that. Yes. (laughs) No, it wasn't just just an addition. God, yes. Just an addition. Yeah, Yeah. we, and everyone should expect more. Yeah. From them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's time. It's time. Let's be, let's be, let's all be better. Let's just be better. Yes. Let's remind everyone that, again, the narrative of teaching women how to protect themselves against assaults should not be as loud as the narrative of teaching young men not to assault. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. feels like that's a concept that it's wild is still not commonly uh, discussed or thought about in 2024. No. Yeah. Like, I I can't remember his name, and it doesn't matter, because I won't say it even if I could remember. But that, uh, <sighs> that curly-haired, curly-haired, curly-haired kid, um, I believe he assaulted a woman uh, while she was unconscious. And he was like a swimmer or something. It was a college thing. Um, and he was found, I think he was found guilty. And they were like, oh. You're going to ruin his life. Yep. And I'm like, who the fuck cares? You think her life is great? Oh, I. <laughs> it's, I don't like when anything wrong do, wrongdoing happens because then I get uh, spicy and angry. But, but when a man is involved and tries to pull the, well, what about me? Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <sighs> Like, then I could lead an army. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, then she's gonna, she's gonna see red. Yeah. Well, listen, I'd love, I'll, you lead that army, I'll be the first in line. <laughs> oh, if you think you're not gonna help me lead this thing. Let me be the Riker to your, Perca- your Picard, okay? <laughs> Our army is just gonna end up being us. Laying on a couch recording TikToks. So many snacks. <laughs> oh, food invasion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, before we get into it, what you drinking over there? Yeah. Something fun? <sighs> nope. <laughs> uh, you would think so. <laughs> but uh, I've been blessed with such a small amount of time in this year already, and I'm already back on medication that I can't drink. Um, so I've got a Coke and a water. Yeah, I've got a Diet Coke and a water, but also just like such a steady stream of these Kinder Mini chocolate wrappers. Like, oh, I'm basically my. drinking these down, so. The Kinder Minis. I'd like to talk about whatever that innard is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That wasn't, wasn't the way to say it. But that like, it's not a chocolate. They just call it like a like a milk something. I don't know what it is. 
I'm here for it. Yep. I'm here for it. Absolutely. And have you had the the little kinder, the little mini eggs were inside? Yep. It's just like with a with a bit of hazelnut. Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. Like have you had this is why this is why our army is gonna be snacked. Again, the army's it's gonna take some time to get things going, but we'll get there. We'll get there once we've eaten. <laughs> um yeah. Have you at Christmas? I had these little kinder ones. They were in the shape of penguins, and inside okay. of them was the the beautiful white stuff that we don't know what it is. Of course, and cookie bits. Oh, like a cookies and cream situation. Oh, okay. it's a twelve out of ten. Oh, I like this. Just so you yeah. know, our uh, the logo for our army has to feature a raccoon. <laughs> Yeah. Because they also fight. Uh, a raccoon will mess you up. Hey. Yeah. It also oh, that is, somehow makes sense. It's also lazy and, and, and eats a lot. But yeah, if pushed, get out of town. See? And that's the key. We're normal, decent broads mm-hmm. who like a snack. But if you push us, yep. <laughs> that's when we attack. Oh, my God. We're raccoons. Well, on that note, um, we're, of course, <laughs> discussing on this episode the Casanova Killer, again, a serial killer I've never heard of before, which for me is a big deal, and I cannot wait to learn more. So let's get everybody, including myself, up to speed right now. The Casanova Killer is the nickname that was given to Paul John Knowles, a serial killer who terrorized America in the early 70s. In a span of less than four months, Knowles abducted, assaulted, and killed multiple people across eight different states. He was described as worse than Ted Bundy because his M.O. constantly changed and his victims included men, women, and children. The authorities believe that Knowles was responsible for the deaths of nearly 20 people, although he claims that the real number is closer to 35. So who was the Casanova killer? Who were his victims? And how was he finally stopped? Christy Hawksbottle investigates. I'll be honest, I don't remember how I heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) But it was recent. Okay. I don't know if I was specifically looking for like a place or specifically looking for like a serial killer or something, but I ended up coming across him. But prior to that, no knowledge whatsoever. But uh, listen, I'm all for it. That's the it's the whole point of uh, doing this. Uh, we get, uh, you know, we get something different. Uh, so disclaimer. Um because we're talking about a serial killer, you know I'm not getting away without a disclaimer. Um, this episode will contain mentions of rape, so trigger warning for those who need it. Now, on November 7th, 1974, 45-year-old Sandy Fox arrived in Atlanta, Georgia on a work trip. She was a journalist from the UK in America for a one-month tryout with an American weekly newspaper. The day prior, uh, Sandy had spent the day in Washington, D.C., unsuccessfully trying to get an interview with former Vice President, oh, I'm going to missay this, Spiro, Spiro Agnew? Is that? Oh, right. Yeah. Is that how? I couldn't I even right. tell you what he looks like. Doesn't matter. So, so Sandy gets to Atlanta She is discouraged because, of course, didn't get the interview she was hoping for. So she went to the Holiday Inn bar to have drinks with some colleagues. At the bar, Sandy met 28-year-old restaurateur 
Daryl Golden. Sandy described Daryl as ruggedly handsome and, quote, a cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Wow. For our younger listeners, Ryan O'Neill and Robert Redford are both actors. O'Neill is most known for the movies Love Story and Paper Moon, while Redford is most known for The Natural and The Horse Whisperer. Should I have chosen something other than The Horse Whisperer? Probably, but that's, that's, uh, that one for some reason is in my soul. But speaking of my soul, for me, Robert Redford will always be Warren from the 1996 tearjerker Up Close and Personal. It also stars the always stunning Michelle Pfeiffer. And if you've seen it, just know I have not seen it for decades. But when I close my eyes, I can still see the shot of Warren's boots at the airfield and it haunts me. I can't think about it. Oh, that movie's heartbreaking. So my point is, Michelle Pfeiffer is timeless, and I will not accept any other opinions on that matter. I like that. So Sandy meets Daryl. He tells her he's 28. Remember, I said she's 45. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. But Sandy later said she wasn't sure about him right away, because at the time, her ideal range for men was early to mid-20s. Again, she was 45. I, no shade. I mean, in fact, outright kudos to her for knowing what she liked and going for it. But she was suggesting but, that 28 was a little old for her. She was suggesting maybe he was out of her range, just not interested. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Look, she knew what she wanted. Yep. Kudos. So, apparently Daryl asked Sandy to dance. They spent the night drinking and flirting. One thing leads to another. They spend the night together. Sandy would later say the sex was disappointing because Daryl struggled to get an erection. I only specifically mention that detail because it will be important later on. Okay. So Sandy tells Daryl that she has to go to West Palm Beach, Florida the following day. And Daryl says, well, hell, I'm headed to Miami, which is only like 72 miles or 117 kilometers south of West, Be West Palm Beach. So he offers to drive her. And for whatever reason, she's like, yeah, cool. Even though it was like 599 miles away. Yeah. And she's like, I barely know this guy, but hey, you do you. So on the trip, Daryl told Sandy that he believed he would be dead within a year. Didn't give a reason. Just said he just believed his life was going to be short. That was it. And then Sandy said that she was a journalist. And then Daryl was like, weird. Maybe you could write a book about me someday. Again, that'll come up. Sandy and Daryl arrive in West Palm Beach on November 10th. But he didn't just drop her off where she needed to go and then leave. He, like, drove her to where she had to go and then just sat in the car for hours and waited till she was done and then drove her somewhere else. Later that night, Sandy and Daryl uh, had drinks with some journalists that Sandy knew. It was there that Sandy just kind of up and ended things with Daryl. 
Uh, She told him she was heading back to London soon. It didn't make sense for them to continue. After Sandy left, a fellow journalist and his wife sat with Daryl for a few hours because they kind of felt sorry for him. The next day, Daryl offered to drive the journalist's wife, Susan McKenzie, to a hair appointment. I have a lot of questions about that, but I'll let it go. Susan accepted the ride, but on the drive, Daryl said something was wrong, and he pulled the car over. When Susan questioned him, Daryl pulled out a gun and then demanded that she have sex with him. Ooh. Susan refused. She quickly got out of the car, but he grabbed her by the hair and tried to drag her to a nearby wooded area. She managed to get away. She flagged down a passing driver who drove Susan to a nearby payphone. For our younger listeners, back in the day, there used to be these public phones placed around random locations. Local calls cost a quarter. Um, I'm just trying to bring back that moment from earlier. Of course. I, I loved it. I, I live for a bit. Oh, listen, I was like, I, I mean, this is just good educational know. information. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, there's going to be someone out there that's like, a quarter? Wow. Okay. It's not a bad deal. Right? So... Susan calls the police. Daryl flees the scene. Police put out an APB for the red Chevy Impala that Daryl was last seen driving. The Impala was spotted by a squad car who pulled Daryl over. But when the officer got near the car, Daryl pulled out a sawed-off shotgun. And the officer chose to duck for cover. And Daryl fled the scene. The officer chose the right move, by the way. I didn't mean to sound like he had not. So the police call Sandy Fox to ask if she's heard from Daryl. She says no. They say, well, Susan, they're like, do you know Susan McKenzie? And she's like, yeah, she's my colleague's wife. And they responded, your friend attempted to rape her this morning. Sandy's response And I quote, good God, and he wasn't even a good poke. Well, Sandy, there's not the time, Sandy. Point. It's a weird thing to say, but anyway. It is a weird (laughs) thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. But okay. Okay. So a few days later, police find the red Chevy Impala. It's hidden in a carport. Daryl abandoned the vehicle, and fled on foot to the home of 31-year-old Beverly Maybe, who was in her backyard taking clothes off a clothesline. Daryl approached her, claiming to be an IRS agent named Bob Williams. Beverly was skeptical, but Daryl pulled out a weapon and then forced Beverly inside her house. Daryl told Beverly he had just committed a robbery and he needed a place to hide. He then asked for her vehicle, but she said her twin sister, Barbara, who uh, would later, um, her name was Barbara Tucker at the time. She would later become Barbara Abel, either way. Um, But Barbara had the car. She wouldn't be home until after five. Daryl then took Beverly, who suffered from cerebral palsy, to a bedroom where he bound her hands behind her back and put a gag in her mouth. It was said that he did attempt to rape her, but I couldn't verify for sure or not. When Barbara returned to the house with her son, Daryl shoved a gun at her and forced her to the bedroom where he tied up the child 
and then took Barbara outside to her beige Volkswagen Beetle. He pointed a gun at her, told Barbara to drive, and said, we're headed to Georgia. 30 minutes later, Barbara's son managed to free himself and run to a neighbor's house where he called police. The man who the child described um, matched the description of the man who attempted to attack Susan McKenzie days prior, so police put out an APB for the new vehicle, complete with Daryl's description. And since an abduction was involved in this situation, the FBI, including a hostage negotiator, was dispatched from the nearest field office while Daryl was forcing Barbara out of town. The police were processing that red Chevy Impala that Daryl left behind. In the car, they found various license plates from other states. They found clothing, jewelry, newspaper articles, and vinyl records. When the police ran the Impala's VIN number, they discovered the car belonged to a man named William Bates in Lima, Ohio. Police then used William's credit card receipts to create a timeline and found that that credit card had been used in 37 different states in the past two months. Wow. But the signature on the receipts did not match the signature that was on file for William, and his photo looked nothing like the description of the man who was seen driving the car. When police went to William's home in Lima, they discovered that William had gone to work on the night of September 3rd and had not been seen or heard from since. So clearly, Daryl had stolen William's car and his credit cards, and when police searched Lima for any sign of William, they found a 1971 yellow Dodge Dart Demon abandoned at a hotel. They ran the VIN number of that car and found it was registered to Alice Curtis, a retired school teacher in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. The vehicle looked as though someone had spent like a lot of time in it, like food wrappers, coffee cups, all of that filling the hole inside. Um, fingerprints found inside Alice's vehicle matched ones that were found inside William's vehicle. So it was pretty safe to assume that whoever stole William's car also stole Alice's car. But when police looked into Alice, they discovered she was murdered in her home four months earlier. So now police knew they weren't only searching for a thief and an abductor, they were also searching for a possible murderer. And when they found an address for Daryl Golden, they discovered the real Daryl had reported his credit card missing weeks prior, so the police realized they did not know the identity of the man that they were searching for who had taken Barbara Abel. However, in the backseat of that Impala, the police got a very lucky break because they discovered some paperwork, or more specifically, the last will and testament of a man named John Paul Knowles. Wow. When they searched his name in the criminal database, they discovered a very long list of charges, including kidnapping, auto theft, and burglary. When they showed Barbara's sister Beverly a series of photos, she easily picked out Paul's photo as the man who abducted her sister. So the man who told journalist Sandy Fox that he was 28-year-old Daryl Golden was really... 33-year-old Paul John Knowles. So now police knew who they were looking for. 
if she knew he was 33, would she have for sure said no? It's a question Great that I question. Have. But Paul John Knowles was born April 25th, 1946 in Orlando, Florida. Not much is known about his childhood, but I do know that his parents were Thomas and Bonnie Knowles and that they had at least one other son named Bruce. There may have been two more siblings, but I couldn't confirm that. Now, since I'm going to spend the rest of this episode talking about a vicious killer, I'm uncomfortable using his first name, so I'm just going to refer to him as Knowles, because it's less familiar. Mm -hmm. So at the age of eight, Knowles was caught stealing a bike, and his father disowned him and had the child put up for adoption. Jesus. Okay. Again, not much is known about events prior to this. Um, there was also no indication about how his mother felt about this situation, because it's only ever mentioned his father kicked the child out. Um, I don't know if the mother agreed or if she just went along with whatever the husband wanted. I don't know. Either way, this was the beginning of Noel's very long criminal history. His first official arrest happened when he was 19. He kidnapped a police officer who stopped him for a minor traffic violation, which feels like a really over-the-top response. Yeah. Uh, by this point, Knowles had a rap sheet 11 years long, full of various petty crimes, and he was back and forth between foster homes and reformatories. Knowles married very young. It didn't last very long. He was in and out of prison. In fact, between 1965, when he was 19, and 1974, he spent at least half of each of those years behind bars, usually for auto theft or burglary. While doing a stint at Rayford Prison in Florida in 1972, he started corresponding with Angela Kovic, a cocktail waitress from San Francisco. The two met through a classified ad placed in a magazine called American Astrology. Mm -hmm. They became pen pals, and Angela later said at the time when they first started writing, she'd been struggling in her marriage, which caused her to maybe romanticize those letters. Angela flew from San Francisco to meet Knowles in early 1974. During that first meeting, where again, he's in prison at this point, uh, he proposed to her, and she accepted but then soon after, she consulted a psychic. The psychic tells her, Angela should try and get Knowles out of prison. So Angela contacts an attorney named Sheldon Yavitz and convinced him to take Knowles' case. Angela's mother then paid $5,000 in legal fees to get Knowles released. Wow. Knowles told Angela he was in prison over a drug transaction got gone wrong. Truth is, he was serving three years for burglary. But somehow, that lawyer managed to get Knowles released early due to some sort of technical error. Knowles was released May 1974, and Angela sent him money to join her in California. But once he got there... Angela said, quote, I just had a funny feeling about him. She knew something was up when Knowles showed absolutely no interest in the job that Angela had lined up for him. Angela then consulted a psychic again, and this time, 
the psychic warned her about, quote, a very dangerous man who was entering her life. Angela took it as a sign. She ended the engagement and bought Knowles a plane ticket back to Florida. Angela then reunited with her husband. Wow, but, a, but the damage a, was done. She got him out of prison? Like, Well, according to Knowles, on the night that Angela broke up with him, he went out and killed three people. Here we go. Aside from that confession, no one has been able to verify whether or not that's true. But Knowles returned to Jacksonville, Florida the following day, where a few weeks later, he got into a bar fight during which he stabbed a bartender. Knowles was arrested and placed in a holding cell. But on July 26th, he picked the lock and escaped custody. Later that night, Knowles cut the the screen on a first floor window and entered the home of retired school teacher Alice Curtis. Knowles bound Alice's hands and feet and put a gag in her mouth and then beat her to what police described as an excessive level. Knowles then took Alice's money and drove off in her 1971 yellow Dodge Dart Demon. Alice's son discovered her body the following day. According to the autopsy, Alice died from asphyxiation from the gag. She was 65 at the time of her death. And this was just the beginning of Knowles' killing spree. Over the next 113 days, he would attack at least 22 people. Although he claims it was closer to 35. I'm transfixed. I'm building a I'm building a profile. I'm I hoped you would. Riveted. Um Wowzer. Listen, let's take a quick break, hit the can, grab a drink, and we're gonna be back with more on the Casanova Killer episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Welcome back to this episode of the... It's of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking about the Casanova Killer. You know what it is? I'm so jazzed. I'm so excited. Hey. I was like, welcome back to the Casanova Killer episode. Like, I just could not be more <laughs> into this because this is just a fascinating profile. Uh, as we know, I'm a 
I'm a hobbyist. I'm a profiler sure. hobbyist. Sure. So I'm jazzed. Anyway, uh, before the break, we were getting into the real horror show of this guy. What's next? Oh, well, <laughs> that was just the beginning of the, of the horrors. So in a taped confession, Knowles allegedly claimed that before leaving Jacksonville after the murder of Alice Curtis, he was responsible for two missing children. Six-year-old Milette Anderson and her 11-year-old sister Lillian, who went by Annette, were last seen by their mother Elizabeth on August 1st. Elizabeth and her older daughter Donna left the house in Jacksonville, Florida around 6 p.m. to tend to a sick relative. Elizabeth's husband Jack was expected at home around 7. But Jack, who was a commercial fisherman, called the house at seven and told his daughters he would be late because there was some sort of engine problem on the boat. But he spoke to his daughters and they were both fine at that point. Jack arrived 20 minutes later and his daughters were gone. There was no sign of forced entry. The house doors were closed but unlocked. The family's dog, which usually had free range of the house, was found unharmed shut in a bedroom. Neighbors later claimed to have seen a yellow car, which matched the description of the car stolen from Alice Curtis's house in the area the night the girls disappeared. Now, Knowles claims that he strangled the girls and dumped their bodies in a nearby swamp. As of this record, Milette and Annette have never been found. The taped confession that Knowles made has since been lost. So was he involved in this disappearance or was he just trying to boost his own numbers? Honestly, it could go either way. The police believe the confession is false because at one point he did tell them where the bodies were or where he left the bodies and they went and looked and couldn't find them anywhere. So they just assume he was lying about being involved. He also could have been lying about where he put them. Could go either way. But if he was involved, I wonder if he was involved in a few others in the area that he has not been linked to, because Milet and Annette were two of five girls who went missing from that area between July and October 1974 which just so happens to coincide with the crime spree that Knowles went on. The first girl was nine-year-old Jean-Marie Schoen, who was last seen leaving an arcade called The Hangout, with a man who witnesses described as, quote, having hair like Elvis. Now, Knowles definitely had like a 70s rock star sort of hair, so I could maybe see that being considered like Elvis? I don't know. Jean was last seen July 21st. Now, Knowles was definitely in the area at the time, but I can't tell if he was in jail or not, because after he left San Francisco in June 1974, he went to Florida, and all I know is at some point he was arrested for stabbing that bartender, put in jail, and he escaped July 26th. But it seems like he was, he escaped from a holding cell, so it's possible he was only there 
for a couple of days, which means he would have been out on the 21st when that girl went missing. I'm just saying. He also yeah. may have been in prison at the time. But the point is, um, as of this record, Jean Schoen has never been found. Uh, 12-year-old Virginia Helm was last seen September 27th. Her partially clothed body was found in a shallow grave a month later. She had been shot in the head. Noel's whereabouts uh, were unknown at this point. So if these missing girls' cases are connected, it is possible that he was involved. However, there was a fifth victim um, whose death could not have been Noel's. 12-year-old Rebecca Green was last seen October 16th. Her remains were discovered in a body of water nearly three years later. On the day of her disappearance, Knowles was committing a crime more than 1,200 miles away. But just because he wasn't involved in that one doesn't mean he wasn't involved in one of those others, especially when he confessed to killing the two sisters. And speaking of confessions, Knowles later confessed to the murder of 13-year-old Ima Jean Sanders, who was last seen hitchhiking in Warner Robins, Georgia, on August 1st, which is the same day Annette and Milette Anderson went missing. Now, Warner Robins is about four hours from Jacksonville. Why I've now chosen to tell you the distance in hours I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that's just the choice I've now made for the rest of the episode, and we're just going to accept that. It's very Canadian of me. So Warner Robins is about four hours from Jacksonville, so it's more than possible to be in both cities on the same day. But the Anderson girls went missing around 7 p.m., so then unless Ima went missing earlier in the day, it seems less likely Knowles could have done both, even though he has confessed to both. Ima's remains were found in a wooded area nearly two years later. Despite Knowles' taped confession, Ima was not officially identified until December 2011. In his confession, Knowles claimed he picked up a teenage hitchhiker and sexually assaulted her before strangling her and dumping her body in the woods. In the audio recording, Knowles refers to the victim as Alma, so police didn't connect that confession to Ima right away. So her remains were referred to as Jane Doe for decades. Ima's ashes were finally returned to her family in January 2012, 37 years after she went missing. Wow. And I know that since the three girls were all abducted on the same day in different places, it's tough to know whether both could have both been committed by the same person even though he admitted to it. Again, the sisters were abducted late at night. 7 p.m. apparently is late at night to me. That's what age I am. Um, I just, it kills me. I don't know what time of day Ima was last seen. It doesn't seem plausible that he would abduct and murder the sisters, drive four hours to Georgia, and then murder again. I mean, if he was already out of Florida at that time, and then he got Ima first and then took off to Florida and happened upon the girls. It's possible. But again, he we know he killed Alice Curtis on July 26th. Maybe he got out of Dodge, went to Georgia that night, and then killed Ima on his way out of town and then went to Florida again. 
Again, he used a credit card and he was in 37 states in less than two months. So it wouldn't be a surprise if he's constantly back and forth between different states. So, I mean, it's more than possible. He also had a girlfriend who lived in Macon, Georgia, which is like 20 miles from where Ima went missing. So the idea of him being in the area seems again more plausible. And yeah, he, he had a girlfriend. Um, he was seeing a single mother of three named Jackie Knight. They'd been seeing each other off and on since 1970. Jackie said Knowles was very secretive about what he did for a living, but then he would admit to and even outright brag about committing petty thefts. Jackie said Knowles was very nice and he treated her and her children well. He often brought them gifts when he came to town. We'll get into that more later. But it's possible that Knowles only confessed to the crimes, even if he didn't commit them, just to make himself mean, seem more impressive, which is gross, but it is common in serial killers. I only suggest the timeline because the day after the three girls were murdered, 49-year-old Marjorie Howie was strangled with a nylon stocking in her home in Atlantic Beach, Florida. Her husband discovered her body around 6 p.m. that day, time of death estimated around 11 a.m., Knowles stole a rifle and a color TV from Marjorie's house. His girlfriend Jackie later claimed that Knowles gave her that TV on August 4th, when he supposedly returned to town after a business trip. Mm. When police told Jackie that Knowles was suspected in several murders, she gave police everything that Knowles had ever given her and helped them on a timeline to figure out where Knowles was throughout the entirety um, of the killing spree. She said he spent the month of August in Georgia. Uh, she said he left August 22nd. The following day, uh, 30 miles away in Musella, Georgia, Knowles forced his way into the home of 22-year-old Kathy Pierce, who was at home alone with her three-year-old son, Joel. A neighbor who went to the house to check on Kathy discovered Kathy's body in the bathroom of the home. Her son was discovered in a bedroom, completely unharmed. Kathy had been strangled with a phone cord. Her time of death was around like 10.30 in the morning. A neighbor told police that around that time of day, a man knocked on her door, claiming to be looking for a woman named Betty Johnson. The neighbor outright refused to open her door and yelled basically to the man through the window that she didn't know what he was talking about and to go away. She gave the police a description of that man and the vehicle she saw him driving. The description matched Knowles, and the car matched the one he stole from Alice Curtis. So the fact that that woman didn't open her door, it outright saved her life. Yeah. So Alice's car was eventually found abandoned in a hotel parking lot in Lima, Ohio. On September 3rd, Knowles met 32-year-old William Bates at a roadside pub called Scott's Inn. It's near a hotel where the car was located. The bartender, who knew William, said he saw him having drinks with a red-headed man, and the two of them left together. According to William's wife, he, called in, he got called into work that night, so when he didn't arrive home later that evening, she reported him missing and his car also appeared to be gone. About three months later, 
William's naked body was discovered by a hunter in a wooded area just east of Lima. He had been strangled. While using William's car, Knowles drove about 28 hours to Nevada, where he shot Emmett and Lois Johnson, who were vacationing in Eli. Both had been shot in the temple with a 38 caliber revolver, which was not found at the scene. Their bodies were discovered in a camper by a Nevada Highway Department employee who was emptying barrels at a rest stop. While Emmett was found fully clothed, Lois was completely nude. At the time of their deaths, Emmett was 62 and Lois was 59. His wallet and her purse were missing from the scene. While their bodies were discovered on September 18th, it is believed they were both killed on September 12th, That day, a motorist contacted Nevada Highway Patrol to say they heard screaming coming from a truck stop where the Johnson's bodies would later be found. The motorist, who was just passing through the area, stopped at the nearest payphone to contact police. But the incident was not reported to the Eli police, which is technically closest to the rest stop. So just, like, no one bothered to look into the screaming. Wonderful. And it's just horrifying to think about. Yeah. You know, uh, Knowles then made his way about 830 miles south to Texas, where he came across 42-year-old Charlene Hicks, whose vehicle had broken down on September 21st. Knowles then raped and strangled Charlene before hiding her body in some brush behind a rest stop. 14 miles east of Seguin, Texas. Charlene had been on a road trip and told her family she'd return home on September 22nd. When she didn't arrive, they reported her missing, and her body was discovered two days later. Knowles then drove 13 hours to Alabama, where he met 49-year-old beautician Ann Dawson at a nightclub in Birmingham. I love that I said Birmingham like we're talking UK. Birmingham. Alabama. I like it. There we go. Wowza. So he meets Anne on September 23rd. Locals reported seeing Anne with a man described as reddish hair, wearing white slip-on shoes with buckles and a gold digital watch. Those very shoes would later be discovered in the trunk of that Impala that the police were looking at at the beginning of our story. Anne and Knowles were then seen leaving the CNS lounge together around 9.15 on September 23rd. Two days later, her car was found abandoned five miles away. According to his taped confession, Knowles claims he abducted Anne from the lounge by knife point and strangled her and dumped her body in a swampy area. More than three years later, on November 15th, 1977, Anne's remains were discovered by two squirrel hunters in Meridian, Mississippi. That's like 146 miles from where she was last seen. If you think I was going to learn a detail about what those hunters were hunting and not tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you think that I didn't read it and first think, squirrels found her? Like, unwell. Unwell. Like squirrels that that were out hunting. Let's go. We got to go find some nuts. That's Uh-oh. absolutely it. Like, it, yeah. I was taken aback. I was like, how did the squirrels communicate? Nope. 
nope. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. That's how far my brain got before I was like, oh, maybe we stop for the night. You know, like that's where yeah, I was at, where I, I was like, that. that's, that's unwell. So Anne was said to be carrying a large amount of money with her and was wearing two diamond rings the night she went missing, which is likely why Knowles was drawn to her. Police released a sketch of the man who was last seen with Anne before her disappearance. They didn't get any leads, but of course, the sketch does bear a resemblance uh, to Knowles. According to credit card receipts, Knowles spent most of October on the road. He made stops in Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, and Virginia. He was also in Marlboro, Connecticut, where he bound, raped, and strangled 35-year-old Karen Wine and her 16-year-old daughter, Dawn, on October 16th. Karen's other daughter uh, was the one who discovered the bodies the following day when she returned home after a sleepover. Police discovered Knowles had stolen some vinyl records and a tape recorder from the house. And yes, you are correct. Around the time this tape recorder was stolen, Knowles started making an audio history of his alleged kills, the tapes were mailed to his lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz, the very man who helped Knowles get an early release in May 1974. Uh, we'll, we'll get to Sheldon and those tapes uh, in a bit. But now, before I can fully move on from Karen Wine, I have to mention a really bizarre side note that I found. It doesn't affect the story. It's just... I. If I find it, I have to tell you. It's kind of how it works. You know, squirrel hunters. Thank you. So, in the mid-60s, Karen was a widowed mother of two. She meets a man named Edward Wine Jr. while she was working at a coffee shop. They get married, and then the summer of 1968, while he was working as a sonar technician for the Navy, Edward allegedly agreed to give classified U.S. submarine information to the Soviet Union. Whoa! According to the Navy, Edward wrote out notes containing secret data pertaining to submarine patrol schedules and confidential technical schematics about U.S. nuclear subs, and then placed the notes in a crayon box and allegedly threatened to shoot anyone who prevented him from sharing those secrets. Wow. Edward was arrested while on his way to the Russian embassy in New York. That's wild. In December 1968, Edward pleaded guilty to mishandling classified material and was sentenced to three years and given a dishonorable discharge. Edward then started drinking heavily to the point where he was arrested twice on charges of breach of peace he and Karen divorced soon after. Espionage is not something I was planning on bringing up <laughs> in an episode about a serial killer. But, no. You know, uh, that's that's where we're at. Um, and one more thing about Karen Wine before I move on to uh, Noel's other crimes. Noel's stole vinyl records from Karen's house and he gave them to his girlfriend, Jackie, who lived in Georgia. And Jackie, of course, once she found out who he really was, gave the police everything that he had given her and was like, whatever I can do to help, here you go. And when they looked at the vinyl records, 
they noticed that the albums had a label on them, which had Karen Wine's name and address on them. And since the crime happened before DNA testing, the police kind of had nothing to go on in the case of Karen and her daughter. So if Knowles hadn't stolen those records, police never would have been able to link him to that crime. Fascinating. So I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by uh, when they do something dumb. Oh, yeah. I'm just assuming he didn't look closely enough at them, but I'm fascinated. So, two days after brutally killing Karen Wine and her daughter Dawn, Knowles heads over 400 miles to Woodford, Virginia. There, he shot 53-year-old Doris Housey in the head with her husband's rifle, which he left next to the body. There was no sign of forced entry, no sign of burglary, no sign of rape, which kind of just indicates he killed her for the sake of killing. Knowles then made a 17-hour journey from Woodford down to Key West, Florida, where he picked up two hitchhikers. Apparently, at some point, he was stopped by a police officer for some sort of traffic violation and let go with a warning. The interaction with that cop scared him so bad that he dropped off the hitchhikers in Miami without harming them in any way. Wow. Which, I mean, thank God for those people. But imagine if that cop had run the plates on the vehicle and discovered it was stolen. Mm. Maybe some lives would be saved. Or maybe Knowles would have fled the scene and the hitchhikers uh, would have been killed. I mean, who knows? And while Knowles let those two hitchhikers go, he then, after letting them go, picked up two more outside Macon, Georgia on November 2nd, 23-year-old Edward Hillard and 20-year-old Debbie Griffin accepted a ride from Knowles, and days later, Edward's body was found near the road. He had been shot multiple times. A shirt and some things belonging to Debbie were found near Edward's body, but there was no sign of Debbie. Her remains were discovered nine months later in August 1975, about five miles away. There were two bullet holes in her skull. Four days after the deaths of Edward and Debbie, Knowles headed to Mill Millage Millage oh that's M- Milledgeville, whew, Georgia, where he met 45-year-old Carswell Carr, which I'm f- already fascinated by that name. But he meets Carswell at a bar. The two men have drinks together, and Knowles convinces Carswell to let Knowles spend the night at his house, even though they're practically strangers. Knowles then tied Carswell's hands behind his back with a curtain cord and stabbed him 27 times with a pair of scissors, which were found at the scene and had been wiped down. According to the autopsy report, Carswell suffered a heart attack during the incident, which is his official cause of death. Mm. He had taken medical leave from work, because he suffered a heart attack a year prior. Carswell's 15-year-old daughter Amanda was discovered in her own bedroom with a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck and a second one shoved down her throat. 
The pathologist later said the stocking was so deep, it took him 15 minutes to remove it. Oh my God. Knowles attempted to rape the girl after her death, but he was not successful. So the bodies, which were both nude, were discovered in their own bedroom the following afternoon around 3.20 p.m. by their wife and mother, Ellen. She was a nurse who left the house the night before to work a double shift. She said when she left, Amanda was studying and Carswell was watching election results on TV. Ellen said the house had been ransacked. Uh, Police stated that based on the amount of damage, they initially believed they were looking for multiple offenders. Furniture had been overturned and thrown around. Mirrors and picture frames had been shattered. Some of the furniture had been slashed open with some sort of knife or sharp implement. Carswell's briefcase, shaving kit, credit cards, and almost all of his clothing were missing. And so was Amanda's Mickey Mouse watch and a digital clock that had just been violently ripped out of the wall. The following day, Knowles put on some of Carswell's clothing and went for drinks at the Holiday Inn bar in Atlanta where he met journalist Sandy Fox. Which brings us back to the beginning of our story. The idea that this man brutally murdered a man and his daughter, and then the next day tried to pick a woman up at a bar wearing the dead man's clothes is something that I didn't see coming. As stated earlier, Knowles and Sandy parted ways a few days later, and Knowles went on to abduct 31-year-old Barbara Abel from her home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Barbara later said that Knowles seemed to have multiple personalities because he would be calm and relaxed one minute and then would absolutely fly into a rage the next. She said his eyes turned absolutely cold and evil whenever he spoke about killing She described him as kind of like Jekyll and Hyde. On the drive, Knowles asked Barbara about her job. She said she was a copywriter. He asked her if she'd ever written a book. She said, no, but maybe she could, and he suggested maybe one day she could write a book about him. Same thing he said to Sandy. Same thing. They only made it as far as Fort Pierce, Florida, which is like an hour away-ish. They checked into a hotel claiming to be on their honeymoon. Barbara said she was raped repeatedly before he walked out around midnight. Uh, Barbara was tied to the bed, but was so terrified he was going to return any second that she waited hours until attempting to get out of the restraints. 37 hours after being taken, Barbara was finally able to contact the police. She told them she was heading to Georgia, or that he was heading to Georgia. Police were shocked that Knowles let Barbara live, Uh, but it's probably similar to Sandy. He hoped both would write books about him because deep down he wanted to be famous. And sure enough, both women did end up writing books about him. Sandy released a book in 1977 called Killing Time, which claims to tell the story of two weeks of love and terror. And I get that people fluff their books a bit to help them sell. But it wasn't two weeks, it was three days. And it certainly wasn't love. 
It doesn't and sound like it was terror either. That's true. I'm for those three days. She did she mean it was terror once she realized who he was? Like it's just again, I get it. She wanted to sell a book. Um. Oh, hey, I love that. And during their time together, it doesn't seem that Sandy was in fear at all. So I also wouldn't say it involved terror. Hey, there we go. I, I read your mind. You did. And I wrote these long enough ago. I had forgotten. Um, but again, it's uh, it's Sandy's story. It's not mine. So you do you, Sandy. Uh, the book was re-released in 2004 with a new title, Natural Born Killer, In Love and on the Road with a Serial Killer. Mm. In the book, Sandy not only mentioned that Knowles was bad in bed, but she also said he had given her a Mickey Mouse watch, which she later realized Knowles had stolen from Amanda Carr, which was one of his teenage victims. Barbara Abel also wrote a book. Hers was called One Survivor and uh, was released in 2021. There was a part of me that was like, 2021, that's, I mean, this happened in 74. That's a while to wait. I kind of assume she waited until her sister passed before oh. releasing the book is what I thought. Because maybe it would be too much for her sister. I could be making too much of it. But her sister did pass a couple years before that. So just a thought. But hey, again, it's your own journey. You take however much time you want if you're going to yeah, write something, you know. So, so Knowles abducts Barbara on the night of November 14th and left her in a hotel on the morning of November 16th. Police were still on the lookout for Barbara's vehicle. Um, a 35-year-old Florida Highway Patrol officer named Charles Campbell pulled Knowles over because he spotted that car around 8.30 a.m. just south of the Georgia state line. When Charles approached the car, Knowles pulled out a sawed-off shotgun Numerous passing motorists later contacted police to say they witnessed a man on the highway holding a trooper at gunpoint. Knowles forced Charles into the backseat of the police car and drove off. But knowing a police car would be easily spotted, Knowles had to switch vehicles. So when he came across a car, he turned the lights on because he's a cop car, right? Pulls the other driver over. Knowles then took the trooper and the driver of that car hostage. Um, a hunter witnessed the entire thing, but didn't get a license plate number. He was, however, able to tell police that Knowles and his hostages were traveling in a blue Ford car. When Knowles stopped at a gas station to buy cigarettes, the employee said he recognized Knoll from an FBI photo. So he got the vehicle's license plate number and contacted police. It was discovered the car had been rented a few days prior to 29-year-old environmental engineer James Meyer, who was in town on business. The rental car was next spotted by a sheriff's, sheriff's deputy near McDonough, Georgia, around 1.15 p.m. on November 17th. Knowles was the only person in the vehicle. A roadblock was set up to stop him, but when the officer tried to shoot out the tires, his gun jammed. So Knowles just drove straight on into the roadblock, which wrecked the vehicle. So he had to flee the scene on foot. Another officer shot at Knowles and it grazed him, but he continued running into a nearby wooded area. More than 100 officers started combing the area with helicopters and bloodhounds. 
Knowles went to a farmhouse for help, but was apprehended by 27-year-old David Clark, who had been hunting in the area. David yelled for a neighbor to call the sheriff, and David managed to hold Knowles at gunpoint until police arrived. Police asked for the whereabouts of Charles Campbell and James Meyer, but Knowles refused to say a word. The following day, a hunter discovered the bodies of Charles and James in a wooded area outside of Hawkinsville, Georgia. Both men had been shot in the head at close range, and while there were handcuff impressions on their wrists, there were no handcuffs found at the scene. It is believed that Knowles handcuffed the men around, like wrapping their arms around a large tree, and then he executed them both and took the handcuffs and left. I don't know. I assume he thought he'd use them because otherwise, why take the handcuffs at that point? Yeah. I assume he had plans for, he wanted to be prepared, I guess. I don't know. So Knowles was charged with seven murders throughout Georgia, Florida, and Ohio. He's expected or at least connected to another 17 more, at least. So police Once they get him in custody, they spend the next three weeks interrogating him hard because they're trying to find out how many murders and assaults he was actually responsible for. He, of course, wouldn't tell them a thing. So the officers ask, where is Charles Campbell's service pistol, Uh, the officer that he abducted and then murdered? They believed that he used Charles' weapon to shoot both Charles and James. And the gun kind of was the only thing that could officially link Knowles to the murders. Knowles finally agrees that he will show them where he threw the gun. So on December 18th, Knowles was placed in the back of a police car. Sheriff Earl Lee was the driver and GBI agent Ronnie Angel, which is one of my favorite police names I've ever heard. Yeah, that's uh, good sat in front, or he was in the front passenger seat. They started to drive along the I-20 in search of the place where Knowles allegedly disposed of that murder weapon. Now, I'm not police, so I have nowhere to stand on this, but for whatever reason, they decided to take a serial killer who once picked a lock and escaped a jail cell In a vehicle that did not have a cage or any plexiglass between the front and back seats. So then when Knowles snuck a paperclip out of his sock and unlocked his cuffs, he was able to reach over the seat and attempt to grab the driver's gun. There was a struggle over the weapon and Agent Angel managed to fire three shots, fatally wounding Knowles who was 28 at the time of his death. On December 19th, it was revealed that Knowles had been making audio recordings confessing to his crimes. It was said in those tapes, Knowles confessed to 16 murders across seven states. He first started recording the tapes after he stole the tape recorder from Karen Wine on October 16th in Connecticut. He officially started sending them to his lawyer two days later, after two days after the murder of Doris Housie in Virginia. I don't know what happened 
to that stolen tape recorder, but according to a store clerk in Georgia, Knowles bought blank tapes and a new recorder in early November using a credit card belonging to Carswell Carr. Knowles lawyer Sheldon Yavitz said that after helping Knowles get an early release in May 1974, he didn't hear from him again until October, when Knowles called him from a bar in Coral Gables, Florida, and said, quote, Brace yourself. I'm a mass murderer. Sheldon claimed he was concerned that Knowles would kill him for knowing too much, so Sheldon suggested Knowles confess to his crimes, you know, on a tape recorder. Which feels like such a random thing to say. Sheldon offered to hold on to the tapes until after Knowles' death, which Knowles believed was imminent. Sheldon agreed to not listen to the tapes and simply stored them in a safe in his house. He said he was instructed to release the tapes after Knowles' death. Sheldon later said he should have called the police, but didn't because of attorney-client privilege. When Knowles was arrested, he told the police about the tapes and admitted that Sheldon had them. Police requested those tapes, and Sheldon said no. The police then had to get a subpoena for the tapes. Sheldon still refused, so Sheldon and his assistant, who was his wife at the time, were put in jail for contempt. Sheldon served 48 days, only agreeing to release the tapes so that his wife would be released. Speaking of Sheldon and his wife, in 1965, Sheldon was a 26-year-old lawyer with his own law practice. A 23-year-old waitress named Patsy Sexton became his first client. She was in a bitter custody battle um, over her two children with her ex-husband, who was a state trooper. Sheldon helped Patsy get into beauty school. He helped her get full custody of her children. And then in 1968, Sheldon and Patsy got married. And he raised her two children. And then they had four more children together. During their divorce in 1989, a judge ordered Sheldon to turn over his financial records. He refused. The judge threatened to put him in jail. Sheldon said, quote, Your Honor, I once served 48 days in jail for a mass murderer. How many do you think I'll serve for myself? <laughs> Somehow that worked and the contempt charge was dropped. That's, wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't get the law. I don't either. Uh, Sheldon's courtroom luck would soon run out. He allegedly set up an offshore account for a client who was a known drug smuggler. When the client was later indicted for failing to pay taxes, he threw Sheldon under the bus. And Sheldon was arrested for tax evasion and money laundering. In 1993, Sheldon was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So... In the Knowles case, Sheldon eventually gives up the tapes. They were apparently only listened to once by a judge and a Georgia grand jury. Transcripts were made. They apparently got leaked at one point, but the tapes have since disappeared. And the transcripts were destroyed when, a, when the courthouse they were stored in flooded. Um... I'm like a step, I'm a couple episodes ahead of this for my writing. And uh, in that case, also, it's another 
And wherever this stuff was being stored, the place flooded and it's destroyed. And I was like, that happens a lot more than I think, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it? Isn't that interesting? Um, prior to uh, them being destroyed, the transcripts uh, made it possible for authorities to identify Ima Jean Sanders, um, who had been unknown for more than 30 years. So, I mean, at least the tapes did something while they existed. Um, Knowles often bragged he killed closer to 35 people. Authorities have so far confirmed 18 to 20. I love that they still can't even tell for sure. Um, authorities in Montana, California, and Arizona have since requested photos and fingerprints of Knowles in the hope of solving some of their own cold cases. Um, Something else um, of Knowles that was recorded was a conversation he had with a psychologist. A very short clip was posted online. Um, in it, the psychologist asks, if you could live your life over again, would you? Knowles said no. He said, quote, there's no way I could go through another year of it. I fully intended to be shot before I was arrested. When asked what was the worst thing that has ever happened to you, Knowles responded, quote, the worst? I was born. Mm -hmm. He added that nothing good had happened so far because he was a criminal and had been since he was a kid. When asked about his parents, Knowles said, quote, I realized there was maybe not a lack of love, but a lack of caring. So I had no doubt they loved me but they just didn't give a damn. He added, quote, perhaps they did give a damn, they just didn't know how to show it. I will remind you that when Knowles was just eight, he got caught stealing a bicycle and his parents put him up for adoption. I'm sure there were other things going on as well. Um, I'm fascinated by that dynamic. In his will, you know, the one that the police found in that car. Yeah. Knowles left everything to his mother. And after his arrest, he wrote letters to his parents, which were addressed to Mama and Daddy. One letter was written on hotel or uh, Holiday Inn stationery and dated just five days before his death. Knowles wrote, quote, Just a few lines to say hello and let you know I'm feeling fine and in good health. It's the fact that he's trying to be so casual as though they write letters all the time, which I kind of got the feeling that they didn't. Maybe I'm wrong. There was also a letter dated December 5th that read, quote, If they convict me, they will probably sentence me to the chair. But please don't let that worry you because they will never be able to execute me. It will be changed later to a life sentence of that, I am certain. So please try not to worry about it, okay? Just remember that the father is still holding my hand and he is not about to let them kill one of his children. Now he's bringing God into it? Yep. Okay. How can you possibly believe that God will not let you be put to death because you are one of his children and yet God allowed you to kill 20 or more of those children? It does not make sense. Maybe he believed he was more worthy than anyone else. Uh, maybe there was a mental illness or just straight up ignorance, uh, arrogance, all of the above. I don't know. But he kept the record of his kills because he wanted to be famous. He told his lawyer, Sheldon, that the tapes would be his legacy. 
and he was going to, quote, put Georgia on the map. I don't believe that Georgia asked or even needed your help, sir, because when I think of Georgia, the first thing I think of, um, I mean, is the song, because Ray Charles Georgia. did. Yeah, that's Georgia. the first thing I think of. And I'll be honest, um, prior to, uh, I don't know, a week ago, if you'd asked me to list everything I knew about Georgia, not even close would I have ever mentioned this man. Yeah. So I'm glad that worked out for him. But I wish that Knowles had survived, not only so that he could actually serve time for the crimes he committed, but so that he could live with the fact that the general public has no idea who he is. Because again, prior to choosing this, I'd never heard of him. His disturbing plan apparently didn't work, which just then makes the loss of life in the case that much more senseless. The last thing I have to add, his nickname, the Casanova Killer, where the hell did it come from? From the best I can tell, it's based on the fact that he met a few of his victims in public and then charmed them into leaving with him or letting him in their house. Uh, but we're talking like maybe three or four people out of like 20 or more. So I don't feel the name was warranted. I also wish we'd stop giving brutal killers nice names. Casanova? No. Like, no, I just can't. It's fine. I'm reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, and and I'm Christy. It's all fine. <laughs> Listen, I got to tell you something. Yeah. And I'll get into this more after the break, but I got to just tease it because I can't wait. The amount of times I wrote in my notes the word legacy. Oh. At one point I said, famous? He wants to be famous? No, he wants a legacy. I wrote this multiple times. So that when you said that, I was just like buzzing because I was like, yes, I yes. got this guy's card. I feel like I've got a firm grasp on this profile and I cannot wait to share it. So hit the can one more time, grab another drink, and we'll be right back with my unhinged sentiments on the Casanova Killer episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Casanova killer. So many things to talk about. Yeah. So many things to get through. Um, This whole story is fascinating. I, of course, I'm like, when did he have his frontal lobe trauma? Because it feels like that is, of course, got to be a part of this. But more than that, I just got to say from the beginning, at age eight, he stole a bike. So his father put him up for adoption. To me... And look, we don't know a lot about what happened before that. We don't know a lot about, you know, those kinds of details. But to me, that is the crux of all of this. A hundred percent. All of this. Because, and listen, I'll get into all of my nuanced thoughts as as I go through these. But yeah, number one thing to me, legacy. Why does he want legacy? Because he doesn't have one. His family gave him up. He ended up getting bumped around from foster home to foster home. He ended up in in the different... um, whatever they were called, you know, the uh, reformatories Reformatories. and whatnot. There's no, you have no legacy. There is no family kind of connection. It's kind of like, you know, when, when people take on the family business, it's like, that's a part of like a familial legacy. He, when his, he was, you know, essentially abandoned by his family. I feel like that, that made something in his brain go like, I have to make a mark because I'm not special. My parents don't think I'm special or good enough, so I have to make a mark. I have to leave a legacy. And, of course, it got twisted into something horrific. But that's the beginning of my my thoughts. All of it is about control. I think a lot of what he was doing, I think the fact that his MO changed was because he was experimenting. I think he was hoping that he would feel a certain way. And when he wasn't getting that feeling... I think he changed it up that again and again. makes sense. Because in, in the other thing that speaks to that is when the psychologist said to him, would you live your life over again? And he said, no, I couldn't keep it up that long. I thought I would have been shot before I got arrested. So what that says to me is that I don't know that he loved the killing. Interesting. Which, by the way, also, as I've referenced many times on this show, Jeffrey Dahmer was openly like, didn't love killing. He wanted to fully control people. He didn't love the killing. It was kind of a means to an end to him. But the actual act of the killing, he always said he didn't love doing. So I feel like there's something to that here. I don't know that he was necessarily enjoying it. I think he thought that maybe he would. Like that the power and the control would be things that made him feel a certain way. But I think ultimately it didn't any of it make him feel the way he thought it would, which is why he started changing it up and trying different approaches. Um, But again, more on that as I go. Um, Okay. So we know there's ones that we know that he killed and there's ones that are a little bit up for debate. Murky. Sure. Murky. The two kids that went missing, the Annette and, and Milet kids, I mean, I guess for me, I'm just like, why would he have targeted them? How did he find them? But I guess we do know that he has a pattern of like knocking on doors. And sure. then so so that I'm like, okay, I, I can buy that. I don't know. 
I just wrote down, is he exaggerating his kills? Because at the beginning, arguably, his first known kill was Alex, Alice Curtis, right? Right. Yes. And we know that she asphyxiated from the gag. Right. So we don't know that he intended to necessarily kill her. It could have been that she died as kind of like a result of the attack. So then I'm like, is there no MO at this point? Because they weren't all him. Is he glomming on to some of these killings that weren't his, that he was trying to like beef up his resume for lack of a better term? Oh, yeah, I could see that. Again, the teen hitchhiker, Ima, is there proof that he killed her? Was there DNA? These are just the questions. These ones all, I just was like, I don't know. Again, could have absolutely been him. But I also just feel like at this stage, I wrote down, when's the next confirmed kill that we know was his? Right? Oh, sure. Because what I'm trying to do again is like, rather than building this timeline, I'm trying to build the profile of of how his MO They seem pretty certain that Marjorie... Howie on August 2nd and Kathy Pierce on August 23rd were his. Yes. Those to me felt like, okay, now listen again, I'm not, I'm not negating these other killings. Obviously I'm just trying to like sort through state of mind. So sure. It's interesting that he has this girlfriend, Jackie, who has three kids and he, he doesn't attack or kill any of them, but they need him. Right. And she talked about how he treated them well. So, again, he would bring back these gifts. He would do these things. It's interesting to me that he was scratching the itch of wanting to feel things in different ways. And that wasn't enough for him. So then he turned to assaults and and killings and whatnot. But I think it's also an interesting detail that we know that he had a hard time getting aroused, at least with um, Sandy Fox. Because to me, again... Firmly speculating, only speculating, I cannot speak, but I bet you that was a recurring theme, and I think that's why he was continuing to change up his MO, because I think he thought that he would feel so so powerful and so much control that he would react in a certain way, and we also know that there was one of the assaults that it it was said that he wasn't able to follow out. We know that there was ones that happened before the killing there was the attempted one after Mm -hmm. to me it feels again like he's chasing something and he's trying all these different ways to feel it and it's not happening that's what it that's what it feels like to me that's what was coming up to me throughout this story the fact that he tried it with men as well as women the fact that the ages changed i think he really was like this is going to make me feel whatever adjective and then every time he did it it didn't so that also can explain the spree nature of it. That in past other spree killings, it's like they get a they get a bloodlust, right? And they want to keep going. They want another one. With him, I don't know if that's true. I think that it was like he's desperately chasing a feeling and he's not getting it. So it's like he's got to keep going. He's got to keep trying it. And it also feels, again, like he knew he was going in as a suicide mission. Like he said, I thought I would be yeah. shot before I was arrested. Like, He's He wants this legacy. The fact that he was recording tapes of what he had done, the fact that there was a will sitting in the back of his car. Like, this guy, this was a kamikaze mission, right? He was not oh, yeah. coming out of this. So I think for him, it was like, well, how much can I get away with in what amount of time? And, and, and what does it need to be to kind of, like, fulfill whatever kind of, you know, 
feeling he's trying to get. Again, sometimes it's a you know, a married couple or or the couple of, of hitchhikers together. Sometimes it's a single woman. Sometimes it's the older age. Sometimes it's younger. Then there's the kidnappings where he doesn't kill them. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, always robbing them, always taking things. I mean, that's, that's not uncommon. That makes sense. You know, with Kathy Pierce, her son was unharmed. But what's yeah. interesting is then later when it was Carswell and Amanda Carr, he also killed the daughter. So yep. again, to me, this is this is it's interesting also that in that case, um, not only was Kathy Pierce's son unharmed, but we also know Barbara, who he kidnapped earlier, or I might be messing up the timeline later. Um, Barbara's son was also left unharmed. Interesting yeah. that he's protecting the young boys when he was a young boy who maybe was not protected, isn't it? Interesting. So then I'm like, the girlfriend that he had, did she have all boys? I would be very curious to find out. I'm also, and I mean, I doubt she would ever say, but I just want to ask her, did you two ever have sex? Did he ever try to? Or is this like a, he he was nice enough to you, he treated you well, that you were like, we don't need it. Well, here's the other thing. Listen, now we're really going to get into it. I don't think I've ever gotten into this, 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 to this depth on this show. <laughs> but there's also the, listen, listen, the intimacy requires vulnerability, right? Sure. So, uh, and I'm not talking about sexual assault for a second, to be clear. But I think there's also a possibility that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this, that this is such a part of this in such an interesting way where, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Was he able to be fully vulnerable with her? Probably not. So it would be very interesting to know. Again, if it were me being the FBI profiler uh, in real time, these are the questions that I would ask. Because, again, it's just interesting to to see how the human brain handles these kinds of things. Obviously. So he made the audio recording of his kills to send to his lawyer. That's the first time I wrote in all caps, he wants a legacy. That's the first time that I wrote that. Uh, to me, that was sure. clear. Um, here's another thought. Doris Hosey shot with her husband's rifle. There was no forced entry. And we know that in every single one of these cases, there was no forced entry. Right. I wrote down, and I, I almost chilled myself with this one. <laughs> he wants to convince all of his victims that he's good. Part of this, I think sure. even more so than actually doing the crimes, the, the the violence. Right. I think part of what he, he what did kind of get him off, for lack of a better term, was pretending that he was good and then turning. Because as a child, you could argue that he was acting out, arguably, potentially, to get attention. So he was arguably good, but acting bad. To get attention. And that didn't work and it got him sent away. So the way that his brain rewired was, well, then I want to pretend that these people think I'm good. And then jokes on you. Gotcha. You can't trust me because I am bad. And that's all that childhood trauma. Oh, sure. Right? I I just think that that's the crux of this. I think the crux of him is wanting people is is earning someone's trust and then killing them and then assaulting them like because it's this that's the one piece of the mo that 
It's not every single time, but I bet you if we knew the details of him getting the hitchhikers, all of the above, it's him ingratiating themselves. I think that's the big core piece of this is that it's, it's oh, yeah. that he wanted he wanted to pretend and see what it felt like to earn someone's trust and then break it because his trust was ultimately broken in the most epic way, right? He did something bad and then his oh, parents yeah. literally gave him away. I mean, oh my god, the such an abandonment times, wound. The amount of times that like when you and I are even uh having our therapy sessions, of course, and I'll say something of, of you know, just the way I am now and then it's like, oh <gasps> It's because of this from my childhood. It's uh, things that people think aren't big deals. It's like, oh, no, that shit builds us into who we are. Yes. And, and to be how clear, we react to things is how it's what it's just how we become who we are. A hundred percent. And to be clear, I'm not saying any of this to try and justify any of his actions at all. Of I'm course. not saying that it's like this, this justified what he did. It's it's always for me just trying to understand why somebody does something that they do. And yeah, that's the thing. Something that's also very small to us as a child can like have rippling impacts for the rest of our lives for decades oh, yeah. of times deep into adulthood. So the idea when there's something as as traumatic as being a young child and being given away because you did something bad. Again, I'm not suggesting that that was the only thing. I think that that also speaks to perhaps what that household was like leading up to that time. I mean, it's sure. a pretty, you know, anyway, again, a speculation, but, um, yeah, I think that we, I think that sometimes we underestimate in ourselves and in others, the true impact that those things can have on someone's life. And I would also argue that if we went back and we had the information, he probably had a frontal lobe trauma. I think it's probably pretty <laughs> certain. Sure. Um, so now Carswell Carr, the man at the bar stabbed him 27 times with scissors and then the daughter, he had, had jammed the pantyhose so deep in her throat, the pathologist took 15 minutes to get them out. What I wrote down here was, his anger is escalating. Sure. And at this point, he's been in this, how long? I'm just trying to read here. He's been in this one, two, three, four, he's in like month four or five. I think A, He's he's trying again. I think he's trying something else. I think he's trying like, do I need to be more violent? Is that what it is? Is that what's going to? Because that's also when he attempted the ass assault but didn't. So again, right. it's like, is that was that his experiment there? Is it just that he's like, man, why am I not getting caught? I think he also really. Oh, I mean, we know sure. he wanted to be caught, which mirrors again doing things as a child, acting out to get caught to get attention, right? Right. He's just doing that in the most massive way possible to get a legacy, to get attention. I mean, the mirrors, I mean, it's, again. Right. I mean, um, Barbara, the woman that he abducted um, and then kind of went on the run with, he commented or she commented that while they were in the car, he was constantly changing the radio station, trying to hear if there was news about them being said yet. Right. And he was getting more and more angry when there wasn't anything. Right. Um, Dude, just, that's all he wanted. Right. Well, he's, he, he wanted, he wanted the attention. It. Yeah, since childhood. Yeah. And again, the legacy that comes along with it. Yeah. The fact that he was wearing Carswell's clothes when he met Sandy mm. is chilling. Absolutely chilling. Now, my question is, and this is one of the big ones, why didn't he kill Sandy? 
Is it just because she was a writer? Like a journalist? Is that it? It seems like that's the only reason he left Barbara alive. It's just, I don't know. That one is like really interesting to me. Because he also offered to drive her such long distances. Like, I guess it could just be that. But I would love to know more about his state of mind during that time. Because it's interesting to just pause a a spree killing. He just paused it and then went on a very long three-day road trip with with a woman. It seems like an odd choice for uh, some of the things that he did, yeah. It's interesting. So... And who knows, and I also, the fact that his fiance breaks up with him, he claims he went out and killed three people. And then after this three-day affair, she ends it abruptly. And he's just like, ah, okay. It's it's amazing to me he didn't go kill somebody then. Well, I also don't know that I believe that he killed three people that night. Oh, I don't, I don't think so I, I, I think that, again, he's he's trying to paint himself into some sort of something that I'm not suggesting he didn't kill a lot of people. He did. But I I think, I don't know if I believe that. Oh, no. Police can't verify that. As far as I can tell, they can't verify three victims that would have been killed that day in San Francisco. But no. But again, that's, but, but this also speaks to like, she hurt me so bad. I went and killed three people. It was her fault. Lack of vulnerability, right? Lack oh, of like sure. not wanting to say like I was so hurt or whatever. It was more, oh, no, no, no. Well, she did this. She made me do it. Okay, dude. Um, yeah, why didn't he kill Sandy? And again, the fact that he followed her around like a puppy dog and would like sit in the car for hours I mean, waiting for her. Like it just goes, it's just very interesting to me. I mean, again, perhaps it really was just the value of her being a journalist. I don't know. That one, I'd also that, love to see a photo of Sandy ver- side by side with a photo of his mother. Mm-hmm. Great point. Absolutely. He went after an older woman. Yeah. The fact that she was like, if they're not 20 to 25, I won't touch him. Seems like she was maybe a little no nonsense. And she was probably like, hey, this is how this is going to work. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. right? Um, the fact that the last, the last kind of hurrah, for lack of a better term, was a state trooper and then the other gentleman, uh, James Meyer. I mean, again, like, again, you start going for, you start, you start cop killing. We, this is the beginning of the end. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like now it's escalating to me. That's another escalation. It was a very different style of killing as opposed to the like 27 scissor stabs. Um, but it's an escalation, like killing a cop. Like, you know it's game over. Like, they they will find you. They will, like, you know, we know this from doing this show long enough. Like, it, it just is what it right. is. So to me, again, knowing that he had also said multiple times that uh, he didn't think he was going to make it through it alive, that's just, to me, that's just him taunting trying to get caught. The fact that he had a hidden paper clip which got him out of his handcuffs, but also he got what he wanted. He wanted to be yeah. shot to death. He, he wanted did. that to be a part of it, and he had planned for it. He had already sent those tapes to his lawyer. Already signed a will. Already signed a will. This is, again, like, he. this is what he wanted. Um, the details also about his lawyer and, and he and his wife going to jail. Like, this whole thing is fascinating to me. Um, 
the tapes were only listened to once the tra- and then disappeared. The transcripts were destroyed in a flood. To your point, can we just start keeping all records in like a fireproof, floodproof building? Is that possible? I guess not. I think that'd be great because it seems to be cropping up. Yeah. It just seems like everything that's... Wouldn't that be great if we still had that? Oh, but we don't. You no. remember the flood. <laughs> it's like every time. Okay. Do we? Um. And then what I just wrote, which was similar to kind of what you said, was I love that his legacy didn't happen the way he wanted it to. Obviously, I want justice for any of the victims that he may have admitted to and actually killed. But it is, you know, there is something interesting about the fact that he went to so much trouble to try and maintain this legacy. And then it didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. Um, And then finally, I have to just speak again to these psychologist questions at the end because it's fascinating. Would you would he live his life over again? No interesting worst thing to ever happen to him being born yeah this is again we're really painting a picture here um Mm -hmm. thought he would have been shot before he was arrested yep the fact that he left everything to his mother he was writing them letters and then i just wrote the leg he had to create a legacy of his own because he did not have one from his family i mean this is fascinating i i again i'm buzzing all of this to me is just so interesting and again because it feels just so literal. It feels like it's set. There's just such a clear line between his actions and the, and the childhood stuff. I mean, fascinating. A great oh, choice yeah. on your part. Uh, yeah. Look, I didn't know about the childhood stuff until uh, deep in it. But yeah, I mean, I did slightly kick myself at the beginning where I started looking in and everything I found was like, nothing is known about his childhood. And I was like, God Damn it. I know I it's to know if there's want. a frontal lobe. Where is the um, frontal lobe trauma? And then I found uh, the thing about when he was eight. And I was like, shit, that, yep, there you go. That'll do it. And like I said, I think that I, I would find it, it's, I don't think it would be like the first way that this father ever tried to punish that child was putting him up for adoption. It seems to oh, me like no, it there speaks was to something. a lot happening there. Listen, Amazing work as always, truly riveting, could not have enjoyed this more um, in, you know, the only way that we can enjoy true crime. I, I, I enjoyed the psychology of it. As, no, everyone who listens to the show knows that. Um, but we thank you for your work as always. A 12 out of 10 out of the park. Oh, it's an honor. And well, it's a pleasure. Honor. The honor is mine. And we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this wild ride. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. If you'd like some bonus content, some additional bonus episodes, a live monthly QA, all of the above, go over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails to learn more about our subscription-based service over there. And of course, the only place for official true crime and cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com so check that out as well if you're interested uh christy do you want to tell the people about next week's episode on the next true crime and cocktails tall hot blonde if you haven't seen this one yet folks wowzer buckle in what a story cannot wait uh christy do you want to say good night to the people <sighs> this one's tough <laughs> i'll say it um good night Rasmus Ristolainen. Your commitment to this bit is fantastic. <laughs> I have to manifest cup for my boys 2024, baby. Listen, I have to. On that note, good night to her cup. Thank you. <laughs>